one key note that everything seems to go to or from or away and it kind of pulls the whole thing through and you you have this strange inexplicable desire for the for the melody to return to that one note and then there are sort of notes on the page that you can sing and little accents and embellishments you don't really know what they were so you can decide how you'll interpret that like we are yeah. learning machines that's what we that's one thing we do really well we do so many things really badly <laughs> but we can learn and i think it's i think it's really good to try hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better please make me better I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Vicky. Hello, Vicky. Hello, Dave. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many times I do this show. Every time I go into like the this is the start of the show, I always end up laughing because I just I just it's it's That's always okay. feels slightly. You always feel slightly awkward. Yeah. You know that you're going to hear this back. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like the, the, my awkwardness is the is the is a catchphrase in itself now. I, yeah, I, I think. think that's the okay. case. That's fine. It's a good thing. <laughs> but yeah, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I first met you when you were doing recording young people at the place I work, the Ministry of Stories, which is a creative writing centre, and we run workshops with young people. And we were doing some recording of one of our workshops that we do regularly. Um, for uh, CBB's podcast and yeah. you I don't know the exact title of your role but you were basically the one recording all of them yeah um, and getting really involved like in the thick of the class uh, rushing from person to person to make sure you got their ideas and their opinions about the story they were writing yeah I, I think I, I think the official title of my role was assistant producer or it might have been co-producer sure. but it was it, it's one of those things where it doesn't really cover it does it like no. running, running around with doing slippers anything you could and a microphone. To make it, exactly yeah, yeah slippers because you didn't want to tread on little hands and feet yes um which we realized after the first session was, yeah. was a good idea and that that was quite a strange time for me because that was well, not strange but really exciting time because that was I just started my job there so I started on September the 3rd and I think those workshops started in October so I'd had right. three or four weeks in my job and it's quite it was very exciting to think that we're doing something potentially for the BBC as well yeah um, and then to do those workshops we did them three a week so back to back for three months so yeah. it was quite intense it was yeah great though I mean it really was good. it was one of yeah a really great experience yeah. like creatively and like I mean it was just so lovely that the children were writing the stories you know and to have those voices that you don't normally hear I think on the radio th those were like the two Absolutely. things I was the most proud of I think right? non-scripted children just, yeah. just saying what's in their head and right I think that was really cool and for me getting to hear them the ones that were made into podcasts there were 10 weren't they in the end yeah getting to hear them help me to reflect on how different each one is and how each class has a different personality and yeah. and that totally doesn't go in and out of my brain normally because we just do so many workshops I don't get to think back to what was it like last week and what's it like this week and but I love that and I love how weirdly wacky one story was and weirdly aggressive another one was I had right. to ask them to keep taking out all the swords you know, yeah. death by sword fighting. And that was it. I mean, yeah. there was we had this. I mean, they were, they were completely. They were written by the children, but sometimes we had to uh, like ask the children to uh, join us in the idea of of pitching them to the under 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 six. I think. Yeah, it was. which is really useful because yeah. obviously we don't want them just going for gore and blood and right. stuff all the time anyway but yeah. it was actually real we did have that young audience CBeebies audience yeah so it was quite cool and that was another thing I liked about it was kind of 
it was older children writing for younger children so it was kind of like it, yeah I really liked that element of it like yeah and I think I don't know I'd like to hear more uh, radio made with children or by children uh, yeah and you know I'm, I'm who knows maybe we'll, we'll manage to do another series that that's yeah, put, that's yeah. A, there is a question mark around that might happen so we'll yeah see. who knows and I agree I think personally for me I want to hear more young people taking charge of the radio or or in podcasts or whatever audio stuff and then getting the chance to be to be the the ideas machine behind it as well yeah. so that it's not just you know using child actors yeah you know, absolutely. that's not the same at all as any real creative contribution apart from their own interpretation of whatever they're given to say and it's not the same as giving them free reign and seeing what they come up with and they have so much that they can come up with i mean that's what yeah. the ministry of stories is kind of all about i mean exactly. and, i mean I, I, I sort of I, re, I recently saw online the poems that the children had written like uh was it for, was it, for a garden yeah for a garden yeah and they they, they, they were really excellent like poems like Amazing. on by any standard i think like yeah. by adult standard like they were clever and like the way that yeah. the, uh, they were physical because they're signs weren't they yeah so was little kind of signs got into they spent time in this little garden basically and which is really close to their school and part of their community and just recently been re regenerated so spent time in there explored it thought about gardens thought about plants thought about how they feel about them and thought about what the garden might be used for and, and then thought about uh, writing poetry inspired by it and we introduced that form which is the mesostic form to yeah. them so I think most children in primary age do acrostic poetry. That's right. when you have the word or the title of the poem or the key subject of the poem. That word is down the, the left-hand side of the poem, so every line starts with a letter of the word. Right. And this has the main word is in the centre of the poem. Yeah, so which each makes line, it so much more... Like You have a lot more options of which words you can choose. Absolutely. Uh, and your lines can can intersect with that central word at any point so yeah. the poems make these strange little shapes as well yeah um which look lovely on in sign form and kind of 3d real life kind of little wooden structure form yeah they are they're lovely they're really, they were nice, really nice i love yeah i love those and 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 i mean that's the thing because i mean wh when we met you just started a ministry of stories mm. and and you know that was also my first experience of ministry of stories so we were slightly in the same boat but that was a few years ago now and that was why it was so nice though for me like because <laughs> you and matt hill who also worked with us there, yeah so friendly and so enthusiastic and and you got the concept behind the ministry of stories so quickly that it was about giving young people the platform to do whatever they want to do with their writing their imagination letting them have control giving them the freedom and the risk that comes with that when you're trying to make an end product mm. and I thought you two were so sympathetic to it and that was good for me because you know it, sort of being in that situation where potentially could have had to mediate really stressful situations where people wanted the children to do certain things because you know it would make good radio right and and me really trying to uh, kind of defend the integrity of the educational experience but I didn't need to do that with you too because you you were, you were as passionate about what the ministry do as as we are here at the ministry yeah. I think so that was really helpful <laughs> well, that's really great to hear I mean I am passionate about the ministry of stories I mean I was already passionate about the ministry of stories before I'd kind of come and seen what you do because I'd heard of about it and I'd sort of seen I'd, I'd been to the story event which is which oh, yeah. a fundraiser, fundraiser. for, mm. for uh, Ministry of Stories but seeing it in action was was even better than I cool. imagined so I was really like it was a 
such a pleasure to, to do it. The Ministry of Stories, I guess we haven't really fully explained what no. the Ministry of Stories is. <laughs> we should. So, so yeah, what is the Ministry of so Stories? So the Ministry of Stories has now been going four years, nearly four years, and it's a creative writing centre in Hoxton, London, that works with young people aged 8 to 18 in Hackney, Tower Hamlets and Islington, but most importantly with its very close community. We run creative writing clubs and projects with the really passionate belief that everybody has the potential to be creative and to find their own voice in their own creative work. That writing is a really important thing in life and that if you're good at writing and expressing yourself, you'll get further in life, whether that's because you want to write for a living or whether because you're going to need to write your own CV when you're 17 and 18 and left school. They're equally as important, you know, and that... Uh, that we can really improve young people's literacy and writing abilities through them learning to love writing, through right. them connecting positive feelings with the act of writing. So one of the most important things for us is, is the fun element of what right. we do. And, and probably second to that is the sort of window into different professional fields that use writing. So when we work with, say, secondary age children, we always try and hook classes up with professionals if we can. So a copywriter might come in and help with a project where we're writing text to go on product labels or writing advert texts, or we might try and get a journalist in if we're doing some sort of, say, newspaper writing. Yeah. And we try to, to sort of just open a window into that sort of aspect. Because if nothing else, it makes it should make you a more perceptive receiver of media and written text because you've met people who have written those things you understand that those sentences and phrases are choices that somebody has made and you know that I mean just for GCSEs that's really really helpful but actually as a as an individual going into society as an adult you're more perceptive to receiving all the different texts you know computer games films uh, adverts that pop up on Facebook if you can see behind a little bit behind how the language is being used and why you're actually able to make more choices yourself and be more proactive in what direction you want to take you know yeah. your day or your life in you know um so so yeah so we we do this we do things slightly differently for different age groups and slightly differently for different groups of children depending on how close they are to us we run clubs for children age 8 to 12 who live within a 500 meter radius of our building and that's really about being a community resource as well we really want to be part of our community and, and really serve it as best we can and we want to see children come to us age 8 and still be doing something with us when they're 14 15 and and maybe they'll come back and be a volunteer as well and our volunteers are a few different roles for volunteers but the key one in writing workshops are writing mentors who we train and we DBS check and all those things to make sure that they're the right people to be working with children and then we uh, we ask them to support young people in their work and that involves lots of open questions lots of enthusiasm and lots of praise mainly so it's a really nice affirmative supportive role that writing mentors have and it's invaluable to us it's really key to what we do yeah i mean it i've sort of done a bit of volunteering with you guys for the, yeah. a radio project that you did with a local school and you that did. was great uh fun and and, and in, really interesting to see people i mean that's the thing like Radio seems to, to to everybody, and this is the same with adults. When I've been, because recently I've been training adults in in mm. radio stuff, and it seems to everybody like it's inaccessible that we you, you can't make it. It's made for other people for you, but yeah. it's actually so easy to make, mm. um, and it's it's so magic to see people and sort of realise how easy it is and and hear their voices separate from themselves and and see that kind of experience and all that. That's yeah, it's always amazing to see children react to hearing their own voice back. I mean that in itself is something that you have to to make time for in a workshop plan as well because you always forget 
for someone who has never had that opportunity. Maybe they've got phones, most kids have got phones, they might video each other, but they would never really use a voice recorder and just listen to their own voice recorded yeah, properly and right. well and clearly. And that's, it makes most young people and probably adults actually uncomfortable or wriggle or writhe a little bit when they hear it. Um, but getting them used to that and knowing that that's your voice, you know, you should be proud of what you sound like, you should use it, you yeah. should learn to use the tone of voice or volume or, you know, all those things and, and getting past that with them is, is a bit of, is quite a joy as well, I think, to, to see that. And I'm sure it's the same with adults, I don't yeah. think that changes. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's, that's the thing, it's always wonderful to see people it's not so much about them learning it's it's them learning that they can take charge of these things themselves and, Absolutely. and it's the same with adults as it is with kids for, for me anyway mm. um, interesting. there was a breeze come came through the window that's an, an opportunity to, to say where we are so we're yeah. kind of in, a, in an office that you guys use sometimes at the ministry of stories yeah. the sort of background sound it's a really hot day today um and so we've got the window wide open so you have the sort of ambient sounds of, of hackney uh, I guess in the distance, yeah. which are quite pleasant today. Yeah, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, the, the the second question that I ask everybody, we we're, we're already sort of answering, which is, uh, what do you do now? Um, sure. so, so if someone asked you that, you I guess you would say. Yeah, so I'm the creative learning manager, um, but what that really means is I am uh, I lead on managing a program, so a program of of work that we do with young people that involves planning it, working with other people who are planning it making it fit into an academic year, um, evaluating it, coming up with ideas for future projects. But I also, I'm quite involved in volunteer training, um, volunteer support. So those are kind of the two two main areas of my work. Yeah, and so and you've been doing this for a, f a few years now? Yeah, so uh, two years yeah. in September. Yeah, I nearly forgot that. It's like forgetting your own <laughs> age, isn't it? You feel so old and you can't remember how old you are. But no, right. I've only been in two years. But yeah, right. lots have happened in those two yeah, years. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's uh, in fact, I mean, that's why I'm thinking it's longer because it's, it's uh, lots, a lot has yeah. happened in, in for me as well. Mm. We should say as well that the the building that you work in is a slightly unusual one, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So. Um, if you're looking for the Ministry of Stories in Hoxton, you won't find the Ministry of Stories on the street. You'll find the Hoxton Street Monster Supplies, which I always struggle to say. So it's hard to say most of all when you're being recorded. Um, so the Hoxton Street Monster Supplies is a shop for monsters. It sells convenience store products for everyday uh, events and needs for a range of monster customers. So that includes banshees, werewolves, vampires, zombies, ogres, you name it, we pretty much have it. We have products for witches, zombie fresh breath mints, and we have uh, human thickest snot as well, which is really actually quite tasty. Um, yeah, so we sell strange things. And essentially, the shop is uh, it's a walk-in space for the ministry. We can communicate with the community much more easily with a space that is, you know, open for yeah, business, so right. to speak. It's also a really fun way of, showing young people who come to work uh, or write with the Ministry of Stories that, that it's, not, it's not a classroom, you know, it's right. really not anywhere else you've been. Yeah. And that we take silly ideas very seriously, so much so that we will realise them in a, in a real life product and we will present the story of the, mon the monster shop and the fact that we serve monster customers to adults, children, everybody as, as real life. We, be we will believe it enough to live that kind of sort of game yeah. in real life with customers when they walk through the door. 
I only, only break that kind of fiction if they begin to look particularly alarmed. Um, but otherwise, we talk. We always say, if you're human, you're welcome, but you come in at your own risk. <laughs> We're very serious about that. And children come into the shop and they go through a sort of a secret hidden door to get into the Ministry of Stories. So it's a good way of setting the tone. So, yeah. You know. I mean, in in, in a, and in fact, like for a lot of the things that happen in in, in that building, is the monster shop's the first of two fictions because there's a yeah. kind of another fiction once they've gone into the Ministry of Stories, which, I mean, is a is, is a real place uh, mm. in terms of you know it's a real building and yeah. you're doing something real and it's a real trade like it's an, it's the it's a name that is a registered trademark mm-hmm. I guess or something but but uh, it's also a fiction of the this chief wants the yeah. children to write stories and yeah. that's what we were doing in the workshops exactly yeah. so we have you know one constant character called the chief at the ministry of stories who calls all the shots strangely enough the chief uh, can be can change whether they are female or male depending on who it is who's <laughs> taking on the baton of being the chief and because the children never meet the chief they speak to classes through a tannoy system yeah. and they're quite I mean the chief's pretty grumpy I wouldn't say dislikes children but is very impatient and doesn't really think that they're able to write good stories but has this incessant need for a large number of stories most days strangely um, so he'll ask a class on a Wednesday morning um, if they can help him or her because uh, they need 30 stories by lunchtime yeah. and simply it's impossible to do that if you're just one person and it's there's that kind of pantomime sort of necessity to prove the chief wrong right um, which obviously works with the younger ones more than the older ones but right. that it's very effective um, yeah, I mean, and it's the, really good fun some of them you know certainly they, there's a real sort of sense of belief in the chief like they, they want to believe definitely yeah. They, they, yeah they either believe or they want to believe right, right? and or or they want to prove the fiction wrong but actually that to prove it wrong you have to engage with that fiction so heavily that they're, they're in the same boat as everybody yeah, else. That's you know? true, that's they're really so true. fascinated by it and they engage with it as probably more than somebody who actually believes the whole the whole story. And, and how did you come to end up like working in a, in a monster shop for the Ministry of Stories? Yeah, I'm quite lucky to work here. It's a very <laughs> cool place. So I, um, I suppose I could go maybe take you back. I don't know how far back to take how, what, what's relevant history to get me to this point. So when I went when I went to university out of school, I did music and English joint honours, and I knew I loved them, both those subjects. Um, didn't know really what I wanted to do. Did lots of performance in the music side of my degree, and um, really enjoyed a lot of the English. In fact, enjoyed the academic side of the English more than the, the music. And so I thought when I left, I might want to be a teacher. So I, well, I was very, very alarmed at the thought of becoming a teacher though. I was like, do I actually want this? I think I do. Oh, I don't really know how to deal with that. So I got a, t- a teaching assistant's post at a secondary school in Nottingham and I moved there for a year and worked there and found some parts of the job really exciting and some parts very, very boring and difficult. Sitting down and listening is, you know, really makes you, really makes you realise what a lot of young people feel in lessons at school right. quite a lot and, and it, it always depended on how interestingly or entertainingly the teacher would present something as to how how fun it was to be in class it really did amount to that for me and obviously for children it does too so I thought right I think I do want to be a teacher so I applied to teach I did my teacher training and I taught in a, as a secondary school English teacher four years and absolutely adored the teaching really loved it but just didn't really get on with the with the school environment and with the kind of restrictions and sort of felt like creativity was being squeezed out of teachers' roles sort of inch by inch every day. Um, 
which is actually really soul destroying as, a, as an right. individual. Right. Um, and I sort of knew I was like, I have to get out of, I have to get out of the classroom now because I think I might want to go back to it one day. But if I don't leave now, I will become that dispirited, angry, depressed, right. not inspired teacher who probably gets used to having a really good salary and never leaves because they've got a big mortgage or something like that's yeah. basically what I was headed for despite my passion for teaching so I thought this is really sad and I'm not going to be that person so I I left without anything to go to I just it felt like jumping off a cliff handing a notice in at the sort of at the end of well of course it's May when you have to hand your notice in even though you don't leave till the end of August and right. teaching so you yeah, really yeah. do you just unless you're going to another teaching job you can't line up a job to go to because no, you'd have to be only applying then for posts that would be starting in September or, October, or August. Anyway, so I left and I applied for some jobs, but in the end decided I'd like to study, so I did an MA in Heritage Studies at Kingston University. I've always been really interested in heritage and heritage education and interpretation. Um, and it was always that sort of topic that I, I've always thought about, but never really get made space to kind of think about it properly and, and academically or otherwise like I was always interested in it didn't really know what went on in that area of life you know what do people really do if they're running a castle as a heritage site and how do they put together their education programs and who is it who writes the text of these exhibitions and right. you know yeah. and, and why are they only chosen to represent this aspect rather than this or you know what are they trying to do here and I found all that really fascinating so I did, I did the MA and it was great lovely to study again what a luxury I, I loved it and so it gave me time to kind of recover from sort of finishing teaching and then at the end of the MA I started applying for jobs and I was applying for jobs in heritage and arts education so I, I knew that my teaching experience would be valuable and I knew that I'd learnt quite a lot doing my MA I'd also done some freelance work for the historic dockyards in Chatham designing education sessions for them there so I had some relevant kind of um, arts and heritage experience other than teaching as well and and um, yeah so I, I didn't I wasn't looking of you don't you don't look for a job at the Ministry of Stories unless you know about it because yeah, it's right. not an organisation you could possibly know exists and I'm not from London either I'm right. not, I don't know I didn't know Hackney at all so I, when I saw it I kind of I, lit I actually literally did double take and I sort of scrolled down the website and I was like what hang on a minute no 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 um, because I just, yeah, I, if I'd written down the sort of job I most wanted to do, essentially, it would have been this. Like, I was very, very lucky. So, yeah, I applied and I got it and I was over the moon. I couldn't believe it. And I'd say the last two years have been, well, the first year was a huge learning curve for me. All sorts of skills I didn't, sort of, either didn't know I had and started to use or needed to learn. Um, as well as having lots to bring to the party as well myself. But, yeah, it was quite a learning curve. And it's a really ambitious organisation, so things things become sort of more and more exciting, but also challenging. So, right. um, so yeah, it's a really engaging sort of role. Yeah, mm. I mean that's yes. Yeah, so, I mean that's an interesting sort of journey that you've been through though, through this sort of different. I mean, it it, it all makes sense, and actually, the, all of the things that you you kind of did before now kind of seem to yeah. to, to lead up to this place very well yeah it's fate clearly <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess like you so you were making music at, at, at uh, uni, uni. Well, I was trying to drink water without causing a That's noise <laughs> so you were making music at, at uni and you play well I know you play at least one instrument yeah 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 so I uh, play the French horn and I sing I sort of I'm learning the accordion 
but I would I still wouldn't say I play it uh, properly. But yeah, so when I was at university, what was most exciting and new to me was doing early singing. So I got really got into playing chant and really early folk, and absolutely loved it and found it fascinating. And the university I was at, Birmingham University, have a their own early music library, which is full of facsimiles of old manuscripts. Oh, right, in, okay. It was an absolutely incredible resource. And I wouldn't, you know, until someone had shown me, I would have no interest in going into this basement room full of like scans or facsimiles of like things that aren't even in written in modern notation. I wouldn't have any idea how to interpret them or really have any interest in it. So I certainly don't have any religious kind of interest in playing chart. It's really about the the kind of the sound because a lot of it's modal. A lot of it doesn't isn't in a major or minor key. It sounds otherworldly right and it's incredible and there's so much freedom in the way that you can perform that as well because we don't know how anyone performed early music we've got an idea from i don't know you could look at it from different perspectives i suppose you could look at it from like anthropology and we're trying to work out how people in sort of use their vocal cords or whatever but essentially it's all guesswork so it's a bit like jazz singing in fact i'd say it's really like jazz singing in that you get um you have a mode that you would might have in jazz as well and you have a like a, a, a tonic or kind of like one key note that everything seems to go to or from or away and it kind of pulls the whole thing through and you you have this strange inexplicable desire for the for the melody to return to that one note and then there are sort of notes on the page that you can sing and little accents and embellishments you don't really know what they were so you can decide how you'll interpret that sort of sign or or whatever it's, it's a lot like jazz singing and I, I absolutely loved it so that was really kind of new to me really exciting um, and they have like early singing teachers who are specialists in early singing which is a crazy world and then I carried on doing lots of horn playing and I had a really wonderful horn teacher so that's all kind of much more classical kind of learning an instrument as you would any other orchestral instrument and sort of as everyone would expect you know there's nothing nothing really different about the way that I learned the horn and um, we learning that did you learn that as a child then? Yeah, I started that when I was about 10. Someone handed it to me and just didn't tell me anything about it so that it didn't put me off. Because it's like, <laughs> it's such a difficult instrument. And you basically, agreeing to learn the French horn is agreeing to humiliate yourself in public regularly and often. <laughs> um, and even when you think you've got it and when you think, oh, I'm pretty good at this, as soon as you think that, you can make some horrendous mistakes. You, I mean, there are times where... Uh, you can play and you don't even know what note you're playing. You, if you haven't got good enough pitch in your head, it doesn't matter what fingerings you put down. If you, if you haven't got all the things right to play that one note, like the muscles ready in your face and obviously the, right, the recommended fingering, the buttons down and all your muscles aren't set to go, you could come up with a completely different note. So it always keeps you guessing, but it is a, it is a really brilliant instrument to play uh, if you want to always feel that you that you could be better in a positive way right. you know that if you keep playing you're going to be better so I hope that I'm playing when I'm like 60 and and I'm you know and I'm just even more intuitive about it because I've had all those years but I do play that now I play the French one in a folk band so now I use it in a slightly different way and I sort of take comfort from the fact that most audiences that I play in front of don't have a French horn player in there because it's quite rare right. to see other French horn players about so it's uh, that's very it's a, it's a kind of a weak way of finding a positive point that no one else in the audience can play the French horn, so whatever you do is going to be okay. <laughs> but, like, I kind of enjoy that. And it's people get really interested to see such a strange-looking instrument and 
people are really engaged by hearing it in a different context and you get lots of really interested people coming up to you after gigs asking what it is and sort of why are you playing that and that you know or and saying they like the sound of it and and that, and that's really that's lovely so I do I definitely take something from having been given an odd instrument when I was 10 right now I, I think if I'd learned something more common if I'd learned maybe violin or flute I don't know if I would have carried on because I there would have been all these other people playing just as well or better <laughs> right and yeah, I don't sure. think I would have had the confidence to pick it up in you know in, in large orchestras or in, with a folk band or whatever yeah. that, you know so I, definitely for me is is given me something in that sense and all of the sort of like musical elements that you're sort of interested in like early folk mm. singing the horn and the accordion are yeah. all sort of like off off kilter so it's slightly unusual yeah. musical styles and sort of stylings that you're sort of bringing bringing I guess you're sort of bringing alive now though so it's not hopefully yeah I mean I guess it's sort of I don't I don't see myself as like being particularly I don't know I, I sort of make decisions about what I want to play or what I want to learn because like, accordion is quite new I've only been playing it for I mean, actually, I've been playing it for about three years. But yeah, because you were playing it when I when I first yeah, met you. Yeah, I, remember I was you probably saying, playing it more yeah. than I am now, actually, and I felt terribly guilty about um, <laughs> about leaving it in its case for too long. But it's just kind of, I suppose, the French horn is kind of an accidental thing because when you learn when you start an instrument when you're ten, you're ten, so it's whatever your parent has suggested or. I mean, I didn't. I actually started on the trumpet, so I asked to learn the trumpet, and I didn't really like it, and it was a good thing to move on to the horn. But that wasn't a really conscious decision. But with the accordion, it's really just because I love the sound of it. Yeah, it's great sound. And it's so hard to learn an instrument as an adult, though. It's yeah. so different. You just because I chose it because I can picture in my head the sound I want to make, and then I'm constantly aware that I'm not making that sound yet. Yeah. Whereas when I learned the French horn when I was ten, really all I wanted to do was just to avoid embarrassment, and right. that you know. I mean, it didn't, yeah, it didn't help that I had a bright red French horn case and it's huge and when you're carrying it along it's comical if you're little and you've got a huge instrument and you know, right. loads of, of opportunities for embarrassment. So my focus was, was on minimising embarrassment. The sound that I made, it was just, it needed not to be embarrassing sounds. That was it. Whereas on the accordion now, I, I've, I'm basing my, you know, my desire to play the accordion on like Jan Tiersen songs right. and like on um, Polish like buskers and right. people who have probably been playing it all their all life their and are also 50 years old now and are amazing yeah um so I, I but it's i think it's really important to learn something new sometimes and to put yourself through that learning process not just because i work with children and in education but as a person like we are yeah. learning machines that's what we that's one thing we do really well we do so many things really badly <laughs> but we can learn and i think it's i think it's really good to try and do that yeah but yeah. And I guess like you, we're bringing the French horn into folk. That's kind of an interesting thing to do. Isn't it? Mm. Like I guess you learnt it in a, a, a classical yeah. tradition, but you're bringing it into the folk music scene. Yeah. I mean, I guess like you don't have time at gigs to do the warming up and all of the stuff that you're supposed to do. It's not. I I insist on it actually. Oh, I think you? I'm probably really boring. Um, so <laughs> I always. I, yeah. Well, it's because uh, <laughs> if you don't warm up properly, you won't get through the gig because you'll lose your lip really quickly. So your muscles get tired if they're not. Just like if you suddenly burst into a sprint, you will not be able to carry on running for as long as if you did a little warm-up, did some stretches, because right. uh, your muscles aren't ready to go, and you don't support yourself properly, so the wrong muscles take all the stress than the bigger, stronger ones which should be supporting them. So I usually take myself into a little space somewhere to warm up, 
I also have a practice mute, which is a horrible thing, really. You can't really play with it properly, but it makes your sound much quieter. And so right. it, the main problem with warming up in folk venues, if you don't have a private space, is the spectacle of the instrument. Yeah. People don't leave you alone. Yeah, they really, they want to ask you questions. Right. They want to, what's that? What are you playing? And, oh, are you going to play that in a minute? Oh, that would be exciting. Oh, when, you, when are you on? And it's so lovely, but also you just need to warm up and it, you think yeah. well, if you don't let me warm up it's, you're not going to like what comes yeah, out is good, right? <laughs> yeah but that is a funny part of the part of it you sort of you're the shiny thing in the room yeah I mean I, I used to be in a, a big band that had yeah tr- had trumpet and flute and bagpipes and all sorts wow. of weird things um, and yeah that, there was always that spectacle uh, element although I, I would say that probably people didn't warm up as much as they, they should have done uh, generally speaking as, because it was a, it was and it wasn't just it wasn't a folk band or a, like it was a lots of different there were lots of different influences so mm. there were electric guitars and stuff like that yeah. as well as the the sort of uh, the classical and folk instruments and so that's kind of yeah that makes it a harder harder environment to to, to do the warming up i know that the Definitely. trumpet player was always kind of frustrated that he he wasn't doing it like how like doing the warming up that yeah. he knew he could do and, and yeah. Get, yeah i think it is admittedly I think it is a bit easier to whack out a tune on some other brass instruments just because they've got slightly bigger mouthpieces there's right. a bit more there's a bit more room for error that's less obvious but yeah I think for brass players and for wind players woodwind as well like I yes. do think you just you're just always underselling yourself if you don't warm up you never play yeah. as well as you could right and it just feels disappointing then and every I mean it's only for yourself though because a folk audience they're very very close listeners and they are discriminating I'd say most folk gigs we would play in would have people listening in silence so I'm not you know not sort of doing them doing them down but on the French horn it's sort of they're, they're happy to hear anything you want to do they're not expect they don't know what to expect yeah but you know if you play badly and that's just that's a bad feeling but all, yeah that's true but then the folk tradition is also like it's it's a slightly different tradition as well so there is mm-hmm. kind of more room i think for for for, for sort of yeah. interesting clashes or whatever sounds that, that that maybe a classical like listener would be like that's out of tune it's not it's not really out of tune in a, in a folk yeah. context because that wasn't what it wasn't the kind of setting for it originally yeah. speaking i think yeah. that's to a certain extent that's true yeah but yeah that, i mean i find the French one's obviously got a really big range, it's really high, can go really high and really low, but the central range is exactly the same as my vocal range. So I do a lot of singing and playing, singing and playing, going from one to the other, and I don't find that very difficult because I usually, I'm carrying on the same line of melody, just switching instruments, right. really. Although I don't aim to do that, and it would be more interesting if I could do something else, but that's what <laughs> I end up doing. But it does mean sometimes, because I'm used to reading cheap music, or at least until I started playing in folk bands, but now I won't know what note I'm playing sometimes. Like I, ha- I do, I sh- and I need to really, because then I don't know how to get to the next one. I don't know where I am. So I think there's a certain level of knowing what you're doing a bit that right. helps on the yeah. horn. But with voices, it doesn't really matter what note you're playing, you're singing, you know, it's, it's whatever sounds good. Yeah, what sounds good, yeah. right. Which I love, I love that freedom. Yeah. yeah. Check the breeze. Seems to be all right. Okay. Any, a yeah. couple of times it's sort of blown I could get the wind sock thing that's the thing but I, I can't we could prop something up here if you'd like <laughs> that might affect the sound a bit too much yeah I think it'll be alright okay you could use a cactus oh yeah <laughs> that's 
probably perfect just to catch the wind. Wow, it's an interesting sound. Yeah, that, yes. The uh, microphone is now protected by a cactus plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good good cactus plant to be protecting something. It's a well. veteran cactus yeah. has been here quite a few years, I think. Yeah. So, um, so like, so you went to uni in Birmingham, did you say? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I lived in Coventry for a few years when I was did growing you? up. Yeah. Uh, between when I was between the age of eight and uh, twelve, I was in Coventry. Uh, interesting times. Um, <laughs> so, are, are you? Are you? Where are you from originally? I guess? I'm from Kent originally. Oh, so right. I'm from Ashford and Kent, and I live in I live in Kent now. Um, but yeah, so I, my family from all over actually, and they're Irish by passport and by my mother's side of the family. But I'm kind of born and bred in Kent and went to uni in Birmingham, lived in Nottingham for a year, but then came back down to Kent. So <laughs> I never once thought that I would ever be homesick or ever really care about where I was from until I sort of spent a year in Nottingham and I, I had friends there already, but I would say by the end of the year, I didn't make any new friends. I found it quite difficult. I, and I was for the first time in my life quite homesick. Mm. Um, so yeah, I do I do like Kent and there's a lot, there's a lot of, stuff there yeah and you commute in from Kent to London I do and yeah. and like you say you're not you're not a London you're not a Londoner no um you don't you're not you don't you're not even somebody who's living in London uh who started off no. elsewhere um but yet you're working in a really like a, a very kind of archetypal London community right totally like Hackney yeah. or is one of the kind of classic complicated diverse communities that London does so well yeah yeah definitely and I love that about Hackney I love I love all the uh, history of immigration to this area and I love the kind of really strong working class white working class heritage that there is in Hoxton too yeah um it's really diverse and I find despite all the trouble like you know there are gangs and stuff but my personal experience of Hackney is that it's it's very peaceful and yeah. really like diverse is it's an overused word but it is really actually diverse yeah 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 right <laughs> which is cool and that what that really means is that everybody is part of that so yeah. you know I don't feel don't feel like an outsider in that sense but no. I am definitely I don't yeah. know, and I'm not most of my mates who work in London live in London and you know they've, they've ended up in London like so many people do yeah but I sort of I don't really, yeah, I don't, I, I, I say, I not often say to people I live a constant pastoral theme because every time I go on the train to go home it gets greener and greener and greener through the window <laughs> um, and I like that, I sort of, I mean I live in a town, I live in Medway, in, in Rochester and Medway but I love the Medway River and I love the Medway Valley and I love the Isle of Grain, it's got wow. very interesting stats about it in terms of wildlife habitat as well. It's, it's this is really geeky. Do you want to hear some things I'm, about the Isle of Grain? I'm all for geeky. The Isle of Grain is like my favourite place at the moment. <laughs> it is amazing. Um, so it is also where, getting slightly political, it is also where Boris Johnson is proposing to build an airport. So this is quite sort of a terrifying thought. The Isle of Grain is, uh, it has one of the UK and Europe's largest nesting sites for herons and egrets, white egrets and it has really, really diverse nesting wetland birds. It's a really important heritage space for, for, that, uh, for that as well. It's really incredible landscape as well. It's sort of the river, it sort of sits where the Medway is sort of slightly further north becomes the Thames. So right. just beyond, I think beyond Gravesend somewhere, I think, I don't know exactly, but it, it becomes Thames, so it's an estuary. Yeah, I just on my days off I go there, and there's hardly anyone there ever. And there are diff- a few different places you can go where it's just 
just natural landscape and I just go for runs or I take the I take my binoculars and I go and see I've seen a cuckoo there, I've seen woodpeckers, I've seen they had a black winged stilt. It was the first nesting pair since the seventies in the UK. Wow. Um yeah, like really I didn't see it. My other half saw it, I was very jealous. It's like yeah, herons, everything. It's a really it's an amazing place and it feels like the end of the world. It sort of has that real kind of quite beautifully bleak kind of feel yeah. about it especially when it's a misty grey day yeah and it's that's a 15 minute drive from where I live you know wow. I can get there and it's a special place it's wow really cool. so you're kind of like living a very interesting kind of contrast of mm. existence because I mean you're living in a really like it sounds like a really beautiful part, mm. part of the countryside and then you're coming into a really vibrant part of the city yeah uh, and you're kind of getting both those things yeah yeah I think the best of both worlds I suppose yeah I can see my friends after work and you know I do always have to take into account the journey home though that's the only thing sure it's a lot yeah, of sleeping on trains <laughs> yeah right, yeah yeah, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I've yes, yeah, sure. But I mean, I've commuted between places before, but not not as nice a start point and end point. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it has to be a downside since you've got like the, the job that you always wanted, and uh, you're living in a place that you love, and yeah. you're working in a place that you love. I think the down, that has yeah. to be a downside. Traveling, and so the, traveling. I mean, I, I spend more money on train fare than I do rent. <clears> right. So, no, no, sure. Yeah. yeah I get realistically, that. it's a, it's a huge. I mean, it's not a huge drain. If you think, if I lived in Hackney, I'd spend exactly the same combined. If I combine my travel and my rent, I'd spend the same in Hackney in just on rent. On rent. So yeah, in a way, it works out. But it's the it is the hours lost on trains and and stuff. But you just learn to make use of it. You've got to be constructive. And right. I actually people always say, oh, you should work on the train. You get loads of work done. And I said, no, no, no. I I refuse to work because if I saw that that sort of two hours more of my day as work, I'd resent that because there's other things in life that matter too. You know, so. Yeah. I purposefully don't work unless I'm under real pressure to get something done. I'll read or I'll watch something on a tablet computer or I'd I'd sleep or whatever. So you have that as your own time. Yeah, even if it's just zoning out time, looking out the window or whatever. So, yeah, but different things work for different people. I think that's why, that's what makes it okay to commute is if you take control of the time you have and make kind of compromise. Well, what can I do in that time that's going to not make it feel like a waste? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, when I've when I've commuted in the past, uh, before I came to London, I yeah, I did a lot of writing on the, on in my commute and 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 use that time in that kind of way. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And uh, but it's harder to do that when you're commuting across London. I found because it's just so much more packed and you can't really yeah. do that. I don't have so, to. I walk. Yeah. I walk from Cannon Street every day up here. Yeah. Well, I've started walking everywhere now. It's brilliant. I'm, walking in London yeah. is, is the answer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, it really is. And you're sort of walking and like you see all of the, like you're walking and beside you. There's a traffic jam yeah. and you're sort of like you look at the traffic jam and you look back at the street that you're walking down and you're like this is it this yeah. is the answer because because everybody's on the public transport as well everybody's so squashed together and it's mm-hmm. always so close and hot mm-hmm. and it's been it's been like one of the nice things about kind of the uncertainty of going freelance and not knowing yeah. uh, not, not being able to afford to, the transport it's yeah. been like oh wow if I can't afford the transport I'm gonna have to actually enjoy my my traveling more wow absolutely yeah I'm exactly the same I I sort of I so it's a half hour walk to work from Cannon Street and I have to bring a change of clothes it is so hot at the moment it's gross and so that's the that's annoying but actually I would probably be like gross and sweaty if I'd gone on the tube it's that bad so what you know what could be better than getting 25 minutes exercise being outside not being squished in the tube and then yeah okay maybe you need to bring a change of clothes but I, I I think I'd probably want to do that anyway yeah sure 
I mean, well, I found that the thing is that, that 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 having a sort of smartphone sort of thing makes it so much easier as well yeah. to like walk. I mean, I've been sort of walking from Leytonstone where I live to sort of well uh, Whitechapel and yeah. like Stoke Stoke Newton. Actually, Good walks. me me and my partner walked uh, from Leytonstone to the South Bank uh, the other like a few a few weekends ago. Uh, yeah. You can find some really interesting routes as well. Like yeah. My route from Cannon Street takes me through um, like alleyways with great names like Pope's Head Alley yeah. and Change Alley. Um, and yeah, and really historical building, and historic parks buildings. Parks as well and, and canals. Yeah. There's so much like, of beauty in London. Yeah, definitely. I think it's great. And people, some people would say, oh no, I'd rather cycle it's much quicker that's fine I just don't like the life-threatening yeah me too for me cycling is like a childlike abandon like I I think about country roads and just you know or just just around the block whatever but there's no cars around and you just you're having a great time you don't have to worry about buses and no I, t- I, I, I completely this is how I feel <laughs> about it I'm, I'm really scared to ride in London but it's not that I don't like riding I really do like riding yeah. and I learned to ride in a small village in North Wales in the countryside yeah. so yeah I, I guess I, that my, I was already started up with this idea of of yeah riding and not worrying yeah um, and my like favorite thing to do actually is to write like this uh, the way in in Cornwall there's Waybridge to Padstow there's a bike oh, um, no there's a bike ride you can go you go basically along the, the estuary out to the sea um, and it that, that's great because it's, it's just yeah. for bikes right yeah and that's 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 lovely but I can't I can't do it in London I'm just too yeah. scared I mean you know, yeah that's, me too that's what I, am. I know that there's this coolness <laughs> about cycling in London that that I think a lot of cyclists really feel that like you yes you do have to have keep your wits about you yeah. and you do need to wear like a helmet and you need to wear uh, like reflectors and be really visible and be really careful but it gets you from A to B really quickly really cheaply and there's a kind of unity amongst yeah, other cyclists true. and a lot of my I, friends are the yeah. cyclists that you're talking about and there's yeah. a kind of jingoistic kind of cycling <laughs> is the answer as yeah. well um, yeah it will solve everything yeah yeah but I, I think. Like walking is even cheaper. I mean, walking, all you need is a decent pair of shoes and you're okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I, I don't know. I, I'm on the walking side. Walking's good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, cycling, I guess, is good for this as well. What, I, what I've also been enjoying is you kind of, you, you, you actually can control the time uh, much better. Yeah. So, even though it might be a two-hour walk or an hour and a half walk, it will be exactly that. Yeah. It won't be any of this kind of like, you, you, oh, I was trying to come and then my train got delayed and then this happened or I was in the car and then I got in a car. Yeah, a car, car totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's probably what it was like before before cars were invented and before, well, trains not so much. But yeah, that was probably how things were. You knew, oh, okay, well, it's two days journey, so it will take me two days. I'll be there in two days. Yeah, and that was how it was. Yeah, <laughs> although uh, although ironically, the thing the thing you know the thing I'm using to do all the walking is is very much a very, modern very modern tech. Yeah, yeah that's true. And, and that, <laughs> I mean, I always sort of think, oh, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm, I'm actually I'm getting more and more annoyed because Google Maps seems to be calculating how how long it's going to take me to walk correctly, and that oh. always annoys me because I'm like I'm I must be faster than yeah, they're, that's what no they're predicting. Good. But it, I don't you know it, they I'm, don't I'm, leave I'm you much room Google Maps. So yeah. I agree they they assume you're very healthy. In um, my dad lives in New Zealand, and in New Zealand there are uh, just hundreds of very well signposted, very well marked they call them tramping trails walking basically yeah. um, and they're really conservative with how long it's going to take you and how difficult it is because they've got a much bigger wider shared heritage of, of walking so lots of older people will go out for walks regularly 
So if something says it's going to take two hours and it's moderately difficult, it will take you an hour and is actually not that difficult at all. See, that's, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> it makes that. you feel like a superhero. You feel, yeah. You're like, oh, half that time. <laughs> but actually, they're making allowances for sort of 71-year-olds yeah. people. <laughs> I mean, I've started, I'm, I'm trying to work out if, if my phone knows, it's like been working out how good I am at walking and it's, it's then pitching it to me. That's quite possible. Because I, you know... I, I'm sure that, that when I first started using it, I was always beating it, and now mm. I'm, and I, and I, I think I've got faster at walking rather than slower in that time. So yeah, I, do you know what? It's it's creepy, but I would not be surprised yeah. if that's what it's doing. No, it's, yeah, it's a bit creepy <laughs> actually. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> around about this time, I, I normally ask the the last question. Although don't don't think it's, it doesn't have to be a, a quick answer. Okay. The question I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? which when I first started asking it, I thought, oh yeah, well, people just tell me about projects they've got and I want to give people the opportunity to do that. But as it's gone on, people have started interpreting it in a kind of more like wider way of like kind of like ideas they have about the world or things they'd like to recommend to people or, you know, like, uh, mm. like so less, not always as personal. So si- since people started doing that, I felt like I need to give everybody the opportunity so that nobody feels sort of changed. Well, so they might listen to other people and go, oh, they came yeah, up yeah, right. I didn't know I could do that. I don't know, I think I've done it already. I think, I guess a proper plug would be the band I'm in. Yeah. So I play for a band called The Flowing. We don't yet have a website. We do have a Facebook page. Um, and there are recordings you can get through various websites, um, <laughs> which are not in those recordings. They're old. We're making some new ones. We're hoping to record an album sort of by Christmas, oh, cool. um, which would be great. And all the songs are written by a guy called Dave, who is basically sort of he's the songwriter and the front man of the band. And I really think he's a very talented songwriter. He's got an incredible way with words and a real beauty and simplicity of melody. And he's a great finger picking guitarist. So I do, like, if I wasn't in the band, I would still recommend people to check it out. And the older recordings that I'm not in, I think are lovely. I listen to them. So if anyone wants to check that out, they can. And then ideas-wise, I mean, I'm always plugging bird-watching. Yeah. I really, really, really have, like, learnt over the past sort of ten years or so that that is, that's where a lot of joy is, is going out and looking at things just having a great time living <laughs> I mean, and I, that's great I, I like watch, uh, bird watching too I mean my partner's more into it than, than I am but she like I, I bought her a book a while back called uh, How to Be a Bad Bird Watcher I think. Mm-hmm. and she got really into it then and you know was learning ducks for a while and learning all the different oh, uh, the, the different birds but I mean I, I, I definitely find it like yeah it is being in the countryside and I, I don't know what it is about birds what I mean what you know, because people don't say well, that you're an animal watcher, do you? It's just no, the, it's just that's the birds. true. And I, I like, as a kid, I was more interested in mammals, and right. I was, I, I don't know, that's really geeky to be like, well, like what type of you know animal are you into? <laughs> I'm into mammals, I'm into yeah, birds, right. or whatever. But I think when I met my, I sort of, I, yeah, I was really, in, I really like looking at kind of general wildlife as a kid. And then when I met my other half, he kind of, he was much more passionate about bird watching, not as a official formal hobby it's very uncool for start to to be known as a bird watcher but just because he always found that there was a lot of beauty in in these in in those wonderfully often wonderfully small things around around us 
and um, so it was quite a romantic thing to kind of get into looking at but now I'm just it's like not romantic at all it's proper like I want to go out with a pair of binoculars I will wear camouflage if that's what it takes I want to go see a heron like it really is like there's nothing romantic about it um, not in that sense anyway but yeah I just I don't know and you don't even need to be in the countryside I still I mean actually in London especially it's interesting because because we're kind of encircled by the M25 you get quite a few interesting species that are kind of caught inside it and that the smaller species that don't seem to want to cross the M25 so if you go out to like zone 5 I used to live in Sidcup um, and it's next to like Chislehurst and down um, towards Dartford so south east down towards Kent I saw a um, a goldcrest which is one of Europe's smallest birds and it only migrates to the UK so it doesn't live here normally like all through the year it's smaller than a wren with this incredible like actual gleaming gold stripe on the top of its wow. head beautiful little thing I just saw it waiting for a bus outside Chislehurst train station and I've seen a uh, green woodpecker over Lee High Road in Lee which is like the most busy sort of traffic-y polluted kind of right. southeast part of London sure I, um, walk, I, walk, I walk there quite often yeah exactly buses, and yeah. I was sitting in the top of a bus and I saw a green woodpecker on, a, on sitting almost eye level with me on top of a street lamp just like that is that is definitely a woodpecker yeah. I'm just watching outside my bus oh, that's wow. amazing so I think it's it's about it's about look just having a little look and looking up more often looking at the trees it, more isn't often. It? that's part of it is that they but birds have colourful feathers as mm. well. That's part of the thing that makes them interesting, and they they fly. Yeah. So that, those are the th- so those are both rare and they migrate. And yeah, right. That's not something other than that's maybe true. you get that with say um, like whales or or whatever. But you know that sort of there's only a certain time you can see them. Yeah. Right? And the moment we've got swifts and that we've got swallows. Yes, that's right. Like screaming about in the sky, and and they're amazing things, and they're going to be going soon, and you know that they are going to embark on a journey you know thousands of times more strenuous and more uh, uh, difficult than anything we could ever imagine like we just don't and they do it habitually yeah. it's just this crazily impressive thing that they do and we know that we'll see them again and that, I think that's really it's just a strange really assuring kind of um, comforting thing to know they're yeah. going to come back as well I don't know but, yeah. no no I think that's true <laughs> and I, well also the, the, the other thing I always think about with birds is that they that they are like the closest living relatives of the dinosaurs that we've got yeah. um, there's a spoken word artist that I, that I like he's, he's got a, like a poem about it the angry like almost like, like it's like you used to be dinosaurs <laughs> you used to be huge and it's like and then it all sort of um it, it twists round at the end in the that you know w- we're looking at at tiny things that used to be dinosaurs but that we could easily go the way that the dinosaurs did and we might end up as tiny things being yeah, looked up by something yeah. else you know? yeah that the mind boggles isn't yeah it? that's like that's, that's crazy. A, a gem rolls poem but i but that's always like ever since then like every time i see birds i sort of have his his voice in my head like saying you used to be dinosaurs and like it's actually, I'm actually finding it even more like even more interesting to look at birds now. I'm thinking that like when you see a swan or you mm. see uh, like you watch the way they walk and you're like actually yeah really they they they, they did and the but, way that magpies bound right, I find really like right. they're so aggressive and they are so territorial and they they choose almost always to 
jump rather bound right, rather that's than really fly. True. Yeah. And that's really if you watch like Jurassic Park or whatever, and I know that those are clearly not real dinosaurs and we don't really know how they would have moved around and stuff, but that kind of velociraptor. Right. Kind There's of a lot movement, of birds, birds that remind me of velociraptors. You definitely for sure. see that, can't you? Yeah. And yeah yeah, it it's 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 really interesting to to sort of see this kind of yeah that that touch of what the dinosaurs might have been like in these birds, but it's it's also yeah I mean when you're talking about uh, what were you you were saying about yeah magpies, mm. I I I've, I've I've always thought that it's really interesting how how magpies move, and in fact when I was like a teenager, I was always thinking that they should have been like a a, a superhero based around the idea of magpies because they yeah. they move so interestingly. Like, or a villain. Yeah, right. Villain probably. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Cause Definitely. It, yeah, and it would just, it just yeah. I guess and that would fit really well actually because of, of magpies being thieves. like thieves, right? Yeah, well. and they're, they're known to be to just destroy other birds' eggs. Just, yeah. Just because they, you know. Yeah, like. they're pretty. Yeah, they're, they're pretty <laughs> They're nasty, <laughs> but they're really beautiful. Yeah, well. that's true. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 this is funny. You know, you never know what what people are going to be like. What 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 you're going to discover about somebody. Yeah. I guess I wouldn't necessarily have thought, oh, uh, Vicky's going to be a bird watcher. But I'm not like, you know, uh, I'm also not surprised because oh. it, it does fit. In yeah. certain, you know, and with a lot of what you're interested in. Well, if you ever want fun with, with that, the best thing to do is to go, this is so geeky, I do it all the time, <laughs> go on the RSPB website, I've got a brilliant bird identifier thing, but just play people bird calls and get them to guess. Like, it's, play, it's basically like, I don't know, it's kind of like guess who, maybe, but with, with just with audio recordings. It's a really geeky, really fun thing to do. And what is really kind of alarming about it is that my other half is now very good at identifying bird calls. <laughs> Inadvertently, has got very good at that. Well, that's, that's useful though. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>